Let's go. Welcome to the Coconuts Podcast. Today is April 22nd, 2022. The Coconuts Podcast is your home for top trending news and pop culture from all across Southeast Asia and Hong Kong. From Manila, I'm Sam Beltran. And from Jakarta, I'm Andrew Nasri. Ooh, back in Jakarta. Yep. Aww. I just, I don't want to talk about it. Let's go. How are you doing? Okay. So last night, interestingly, I went to a Jordanian restaurant in mm-hmm. like, and it's, it's really like a hole in the wall thing uh, where I'm from. So um, I, I'm, I'm a little bit actually like by the outskirts of Manila. So kind mm-hmm. of like finding these things, it's kind of like a big deal for us. And it's in the weirdest location. Like I, I couldn't even describe it. And we were literally eating at somebody's home. So that was pretty oh. much it. Like, so, yeah, like a friend had tipped us to it. So we went and yeah. So basically uh, it was pretty mind blowing because like I, I wasn't expecting whatever they like we had there at all. And we we had like pretty interesting stuff like, you know, the, the biryani was on point and he served stuff like bakluba and kabsa, which I am not sure if you've heard of, but I was like, I wanted to ask you about that. I have. I mean, I grew up in mm. the Middle East, right? So no, yeah, exactly. And so, like, so the owner is Jordanian, right? And then, mm. so we got to talk to him to like for a little bit, and then he told us that he had somebody come in from like Qatar or something. Yeah, I guess Qatar. And then he was like, "This guy was moved to tears when he had the food because he hadn't had anything that legit in a while." So that that, that was pretty interesting for me. And then I find out, like, we find out. That, of course, with him being from Jordan and everything, he was practicing Ramadan. And because we had come in in the like in the middle of the night, well, not really in the middle of the night. It was probably like like dinner time. We caused him to miss one of his evening prayers. And I felt Please. kind of sad. And like, okay, you, so... you feel bad at all that, you know, you're, you're talking about all this delicious food. Like We are recording while the sun is still out. And, you know, I am fasting do you feel bad about that at all like that i'm tempting you with all like (laughs) like, all these dishes from your childhood you mean yes like with (laughs) no i'm trying to think of what else i had well we had kebabs for sure well when it comes to you not really no i'm kidding no i mean (laughs) do you feel bad do you feel bad like i would feel bad if you felt bad no i'm not i'm not one of those like i mean we fast we have to resist temptation you know it's not the other way around it's not like everybody has to you know be tiptoe around us and hide our the temptations away from us no screw that well okay well in that case then i'm proud to tell you that that was like the best kebab that i've ever had ah and i can't believe it's like just a few minutes away well not really a few minutes but it's like it's it's a relatively comfortable drive from where i live so yeah that was interesting but yeah he had told us that he had to miss and i guess he wasn't supposed to be working as well technically because it was ramadan or something but he was there just you know cooking the shit out of our food and you know serving us delicious yummy treats thank you for all of that now i can't wait for sunset (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah well you know, there's that, and we have a few hours to go. But yeah, at least I get some right. inspo, right? Yeah. All right. Let's let's go into the top stories this week, where we will indeed begin with a story about food. Ha <laughs> ha! <laughs> so many temptations. From a man painting artwork with his peepee to alien worshippers in Bangkok, Coconuts TV brings you wacky and impactful documentaries from across the region. Don't miss out head down to our Coconuts TV YouTube channel to subscribe and enjoy. So, you know Coachella, right? You know, I mean, you're pretty old, but you probably know like the biggest, Excuse the me. most famous music festival in the world. <laughs> of course I do. 40 isn't old, Andra. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not 40. <laughs> okay. So it was a big day for Thai hip-hop uh, because dissident teen rapper Millie became the first Thai solo artist to take the stage at Coachella. And, you know, that was not the only talking point because she did leave her fans hungry for more after. At the end of her show, she took out a plate like a bowl of mango sticky rice. Ha, that was nice. Hungry for more. Uh Yeah, tell me all about it, har har. 
So Millie, who is 19, she played in the, the first weekend of Coachella in California as part of a lineup of Asian talents signed to the label ET Rising. And I just have to, you know, play up the Indo card here. Um, Coachella also saw the first Indonesian solo artist to perform there last weekend, namely Rich Brian, Nikki, and Warren Hu. Um, yeah. Wow. Did, did, was there anybody from the Philippines? No? no? Um, no? Excuse okay. me. There was one. <laughs> excuse me. Oh, okay. Badubi, the first Filipino artist, well, who's technically in London now. But yeah, she did play a set in Coachella as well. So ha! Take that. Okay. okay. No, but yeah, I like, dude, Rich Brian. Yeah. Like, yeah. Arguably the, the biggest 88 Rising star, you know, if you want to wanna go there. Um, going back to Millie, though, she performed a mashup of some of her fan favorites like Mirror Mirror and Soot Pang, but she stole the internet's heart by eating from a dessert plate and howling at the crowd. Who wants mango and rice that is sticky before exiting the stage? Now, I'm not sure. I don't think there's like, you know, her being a dissident rapper. I don't think there's um, any political significance to her action. Like a connection. Sure. Yeah. I think it was just her, um, you know, playing up her Thai pride. Right. But um, yes. But the the Thai government, they also kind of jumped on that. And uh, so Prime Minister Prayut said, at a presser that the government will push for mango and sticky rice to be recognized on UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list. So this whole thing was a became a big deal in in Thailand, obviously, and um, it has led to a rise in mango sticky rice sale back home. Really? Mm-hmm. That is super interesting. Well, I mean, so, I'm not surprised, but that is fascinating. Yeah, I guess. Thank you, to Millie, for that. So have you have you had it, Mango Sticker Rice? Yeah, yeah, you've been to Bangkok, dude, right? Right, I have. And I, I don't think one should leave without like having, you know, the greatest hits. Mango sticky rice being one of them. Which is mm. like, I mean, lucky for us Southeast Asians, it's totally something that we could, you know, it's it's not exactly an exotic treat, but it's like, oh hey, it's there. You've got sticky rice, you've got mango, what's not to love? So How yeah, I'm all it? for it. Was there any other any other elements go into your dish, mango sticky rice? Dish? Oh, you know, not that I remember, but I'm pretty sure I had it the classic way. I wouldn't remember if they had added any kind of like other thing, but nothing really stands out or comes to mind. Like if there was like an ingredient of note, I'm pretty sure right. I had it like straightforward. Okay, because okay. you know it's been a while since I've been to Thailand, but I might be dreaming this right. But I I think I remember having it with like kind of sweet coconut milk which kind of elevated it even more yeah okay okay yeah now that you mention it probably yeah probably because i'm trying to no i guess we'll we'll have to go to bangkok (laughs) and find out yeah we'll have to go to the office (laughs) to find out but yeah wfo sounds probably probably in june right probably in june wait wait let's go in june (laughs) So over to Coconuts Hong Kong. So remember last time, Andra, there was this controversy over um, the brown face portrayal of a Filipina domestic worker in one of their popular TV shows called Barack O'Karma 1968. So now... I forget. Right? The actress who plays uh, said Filipina domestic worker named Luisa in the series has apologized for her quote-unquote insensitivities. So she wrote on Instagram where she said that she had taken time the past few days to process her emotions, reflect, speak to members of the community, and listen to the many voices that have reached out to her. And she had apologized who had been negatively affected in any way by her role in the series and said that she had no intention to disrespect or racially discriminate any ethnic group and of Uh, ask for forgiveness for quote-unquote getting it wrong. She also said that uh, if handled well, she hopes that it could only be good in raising awareness of issues that need to be discussed 
and said that she was committed more than ever to using her acting for the good of the community. And some Instagram users had praised her for her message, of course. But what really kind of like grinds my gears, honestly, is that like it's okay to be like, oh, I'm glad that you apologized and took accountability. But for other people to kind of imply that she had nothing like she had done nothing wrong in the first place is kind of like what grinds my gears. So let me just read one of them. Proud of you. It takes a lot of courage to take accountability slash responsibility for one's actions and apologize, even if there was never any intention to hurt anyone or even if you didn't necessarily do anything wrong. And then one of them even goes like is much more brazen where they go, I'm truly sorry that you have to apologize to this ridiculously twisted world. As I mentioned in my message to you earlier, because this is a friend of hers, you have done nothing wrong and you acted splendidly in the story. So... Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'm sure you 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 have uh, okay. Did you, I did mean, you want to start? Her, her apology. Her apology to me. I guess as far as apologies go, it, it's kind of more in the genuine side, you know. But sure. yeah, it's it's the comments that are yeah. Yeah. I think she should I mean, address them and be like, "Hey, what I did was wrong." Okay. There's no even ifs, you know. And here's the thing. Like, I get that we're using this in like an Asian context where identity politics here don't probably um, work the same way as in the States where, you know what I mean, where it, it would have been a lot more, I guess it would have been like a huge, like a huger deal there over there. And so they're probably thinking, oh, you know, I didn't do anything wrong because, you know, I was just trying to portray a char- character and everything. But she's literally born in Canada. <laughs> she's literally born and raised in Canada. And I mean, I honestly thought that I mean, not to rub it in her face, like I know that she apologized and everything, but just stating a fact is that she honestly could have known better. And, you, and, you know, if there's even a video of her previously where she was putting on makeup and she was doing like this horrendous Filipino accent while transforming herself into, in, into the character. But mm. yeah, you know, I really hope that she had learned from this, but it's really those comments that are just, I mean... They they really still don't get it why it's not okay. And like I like I told you off off the air, like when I was looking at her, she could literally pass as Filipino. Like if you had asked me, like without any context, if you had shown her an Instagram photo, like she could pass as Filipino. So she could have played the character and not have to undergo brown face, which is I agree with really, really ridiculous. Yeah. Like yeah, she literally looks like somebody I could have gone to college with like she looks like like she looks like she could be a, a friend of mine you know what i mean and mm. yeah i mean i mean it's one thing to portray um you know filipinos or even other southeast asians for that matter as domestic workers and everything which you know we we don't necessarily need to have those kind of stereotypes rubbed in but okay fine if that's if it's the reality fine i mean i wouldn't have watched the show enough to know whether her character have like had any depth to it but you know, the fact that they did the brown face thing really speaks to how, you know, media over there really sees other nationalities that work for them. So, but yeah, glad that she apologized. But guys, you you are totally missing the point there. Yeah. And thank you for that rant. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> You're welcome. It's not every day that I get to go ape shit on the podcast. So thanks, <laughs> Hong Kong, for that. Okay, so we're going to move on to another divisive topic. Okay, this time from Coconut Singapore, where a church has defended a singing Christian on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, okay, before you get into it, before you get into it, yeah. I'm not sure if you have this experience in Indonesia. But so in the Philippines, so I uh, like remember I live on the outskirts of, uh, of Manila. Mm. which is where my hometown is. So like when I was in when I was in college, I would have to ride the bus back and forth like you know cuz I have to go home every weekend to see my parents and everything. And then yeah. so like I would encounter the most bizarro experiences on the bus and one of them was like this like we were just literally stopped wherever like some random place and then up comes like a group of mm-hmm. like quote unquote singing Christians with like a tambourine and a guitar. And them just distributing pamphlets and 
Yeah. And I mean, that was like the most random thing. So I wouldn't know if you've had the same experience. Oh, no. Um, the people who come up uh, onto those buses, um, which are slowly dying, by the way, from Jakarta. Um, the people who go up there are street buskers and they are they'll play their horrible music to your to, to your face unless <laughs> you give them like 2000 rupiah to just fuck off and bother the next passenger. Um, yeah, but Jeez. no, no christian pushing agenda or anything like that okay okay so back to the coconut singapore story so a christian denomination has come to the defense of a singaporean man who drew flack for preaching gospel on a flight that made Widespread news recently. So you know, you know how they say. Okay, I'm gonna try to be um, not offensive here, but you've heard of the expression like religion is like it's fine to have, but you know, don't go waving it about in my in front of my face, right? You've heard you've heard of that, right? <laughs> right, without yeah. permission, at least, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. And sure. So. so a 24-year-old Singaporean man by the name of Jonathan Neo, he had a he conducted a sing-along session on a flight from Germany, it seems, to Ukraine. And um, you know, some people enjoyed his Christian music, some weren't best pleased. But the 316 church on Robinson Road in Singapore said there was nothing wrong with any of that, any of his mm. singing on board, because that was mm. part of his free will. Sure. So to quote Pastor Norman from the church, he said, The beauty of this nation is not in the ex exclusion of religious practices and views, but a neutral platform for the free exercise of all cultural diversities, which are beautiful and val valuable to a thriving culture. But, you know, have you seen the video? I mean, it seemed like yep. a lot of people did not <laughs> agree with those sentences. Yeah, dude, like the people in the front row, at least like nearest to the guy who is playing the guitar, <laughs> they did not look amused. <laughs> yeah, they were happy about, you know, quote unquote, worshipping Jesus 30,000 feet in the air. <laughs> That's the caption <laughs> of the TikTok that went viral, by the way. So... The video was first posted uh, posted to TikTok on April 9th by Jack Jens Jr., who said that they had traveled to Ukraine with their team to help refugees, and they noted that they got permission from the cabin crew to sing on the flight and were even introduced mm. by the pilot over the PA system. And in case you're wondering, he said that everyone, everyone clapped while they sang, How Great Is Our God? And some even cried after the song ended. And according to reports, they were on an easy jet flight to Germany. Okay, so let me ask you, though. Mm. I'm pretty sure you've come across, like, all of these videos of people just breaking out into song or dance or even, you know, doing a proposal 30,000 feet up in the air. Uh, what, what is your take on that, right? And are we being exclusionary or are we singling them out if we if and I'm and I'm not trying to question you on this, by the way. I'm just really trying to ask a question. Like what are, I, what's your take on that? My my answer is God, I don't know. But where where do we draw the line? I have no idea. Exactly. I mean, like I'm fine with nude beaches, you know, but when when <laughs> of course you'd be. <laughs> but when those nudists head on over to non-nude beaches, is uh, should we draw a line there? No. Okay. I, okay. I have so no idea. Is my is my answer like? No, guess, that totally I makes guess, sense. I guess the Singaporean pastor had a point. It's pro I would probably be irritated if I was on that flight, though. That's a thing. Yeah, dude. I totally agree. And I am Catholic. I'm not knocking. Way. I'm not knocking on Christianity whatsoever. It's just no, right. I want my peace and quiet on a on a on a flight. Especially, I would assume an airline like EasyJet would be super turbulent, and I want my <laughs> peace and quiet while I contemplate <laughs> what I've achieved in life. You know. In so you're not knocking on Christians, off. but you're no, but you're knocking on EasyJet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, no, well, but I get it. How do you how do you see this? Okay, so how do I see this? I guess I'd say it as just because you can doesn't mean you should. 
Like, okay, fair point. Fair enough. The pastor did raise some very good points. He did say that it was their free will, A, that they did ask permission, B. But that doesn't mean we don't have a right to get pissed about it as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, I like that. Yeah. Right? So it's like, okay, yeah, okay, go go do your thing. Go do your Christian rock Hillsong thing. Mm. But like, if I get pissed and I don't react as, you know, as enthusiastically as the others, that is my right as well. Yeah. So I and guess we, that's We do have a right we, to tell them to shut the hell up, right? Right. Right. I mean, it's yeah. not like we're we're telling them to like, you're not allowed to do this on this flight. But if we're like, mm. oh, God, like, you know, you're irritating. Then yeah, that's kind of within our right. We, we'd be within our rights as well. One thing I don't agree with, with what the pastor said, was that this kind of this represented an increasingly anti-Christian climate. I mean, no, just a lot of people are just irritated by this kind of stuff, regardless if it was Christian music or whatever. You know, that's true. And I'm pretty sure there were other Christians that, you know, got miffed about it as well. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm pretty sure there are Christians that like their peace and quiet. So, yeah, yes. I don't think this is like a this is a religion thing. It's more of like, uh, guys, you need to just keep it down situation. <laughs> exactly. Over to Coconuts, Manila, where Filipinos flooded Twitter with Lenny withdrawal memes after lagging candidates ganged up on Vice President Lenny Robredo. So, um, I mean, I hope the Filipino humor translates well here because I actually, personally, I love it. But what mm. happened over here? So, like, let me just give you some background. So, remember when we had Ash on board a few episodes ago and she was talking about all these other candidates that were running? Because, I mean, much of the focus has been, like, we've been talking all about is Bongbong Marcos and Lenny Robredo. But there are actually a total of 10 candidates that are running um, in the upcoming presidential elections. Right. Three of them in particular had actually come together over the weekend to hold a joint press conference on Easter Sunday of all days. <laughs> wow. And it wasn't really clear what they wanted to happen. Like, it was pretty much a rambling press conference that a lot of people said that could have been covered in an email. But one of the highlights was when one of the candidates, uh, Manila Mayor Isco Moreno, made a controversial call for the vice president to back out of the presidential race. The yellow pink are calling for supreme sacrifice. Katulad yung ano, sinasabi ni Secretary Norberto Gonzalez when uh, uh, somebody talked to him. O di ang pinaka supreme sacrifice. If you are not a good player to win, then you pay the supreme sacrifice, you withdraw. The same challenge that they're giving us to Senator Ping, to Secretary Norberto Gonzalez, to uh, Senator Pacquiao, now we're calling. Be a hero. Withdraw, Lenny. So these are three dudes lagging in the surveys, not one of them higher than like, say, 10%, trying to ask the number two person in the presidential polls to back out for a quote-unquote better chance of beating Bongbong Marcos, which, I don't know, man, I'm not the best at math, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> that that makes no fucking sense. <laughs> yeah, weird. I mean, yeah, that's really weird. So, and I mean... Obviously, this didn't sit well with a lot of people for a lot of reasons. Number one being that it makes no sense. Number two being the fact that they are three male candidates far behind in the polls and ganging up on the only female candidate who is running for president. So that's that's not really setting you up for really great optics there, right? But, exactly. you know... They should have gone after Bong Bong if that's, if that's their aim. Exactly. Like, that makes no sense. Like, they were saying, oh, you know what? Another number two should be on. Like, the number two should back out so that we all have a better chance of beating Bong Bong. I mean, that makes no sense. Because how could you even get the assurance that whoever is supporting Robredo and is leading, you know, and is backing up her 20-something percent, <laughs> you know, percentage in the polls would actually go to any of you bozos? Anyway, so in true Filipino humor, so everybody did respond to the whole Lenny withdraw call by posting memes of Lenny Robredo withdrawing from an ATM, which is really, oh, I mean, uh, if, if, if you go on to Coconuts Manila, you could see like the series of tweets that have just gone viral. And these are like people doing their own takes. And it's so funny. It's like bank, it's like bank posters being, being co-opted for memes and just them 
posting her faces onto them. And it's 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 really fucking hilarious. And you know, while others did try to try to make light of the situation by doing that and just really highlighting how ridiculous the whole thing was, you know, others were really more vocal about their ire and and asked the question that you and I have been talking about the past few minutes. Mm. Why are they ganging up on the number two instead of survey frontrunner Marcos instead if all they wanted to do was really try to beat him in the elections in the first place? So, yeah. But as uh, we learned um, over the past few months is that mm-hmm. the Filipino politics is freaking hilarious. It is. It is. And it never fails to disappoint each week. It's like it's like one of those sitcoms that you wait for a new episode to come out each weekend. And you're never going to get disappointed, you know? That's why yeah. Big Bang Theory was number one for, like, a while. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> what a shit show. Uh, that's pretty divisive right there. But yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's just go back to the to the numbers real quick. So the latest Pulse Asia survey indicates that Marcos still is in the lead with 56%, although he suffered a four-point drop since the last poll, which was in February. On the other hand, uh, Robredo's numbers surged by 9 points to 24%. Moreno was at 8%. Laxon was at 2%. And the other guy, former Defense Secretary Norberto Gonzalez, was at 0%. And they all trail far behind. So uh, quickly, let's do the math. You know, 8% plus 2% plus 0%. You're not going to get anywhere near Robredo's numbers. So, yeah, Yeah. guys. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but that the 56%, that still sounds scarily sounds like insurmountable and with the election it's, so so close like on the horizon for sure it does sound you know it still sounds pretty much like over half of whoever was surveyed right but there's like 30 something ish days to go before the elections probably less probably less oh yeah less at this point um mm. less than 20 days oh, but you know i guess Anything can happen. You know, a lot of people are still making up their minds. They're changing, you know, their candidates back and forth as we speak. So all like all we really have to do is to wait for May 9th and find out who the Filipino people want as their president. Oh, can't wait. Really exciting. Yeah. It's like the next Game of Thrones episode or like the next season coming. You know, that prequel that they've been talking about. <laughs> yeah. So I'm guessing you're going to be really hands-on with the, with your coverage of the Filipino elections next month. And you know, when when that's over, are you are you, are you going to think are you going to think about, you know, taking a little break, maybe go and leave, maybe go overseas somewhere where 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 it's possible like like Bali? I I, like I Bali. know you have, I know you have a bit of um FOMO from, you know, me spending a couple of weeks there. Ah. You can't stop expressing you? your your jealousy, your envy. <laughs> My jealousy, huh? <laughs> uh-huh. Your envy, rather. My, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna tell you now that you may have heard, you know, if you, if you, if you plan on going to Bali anytime soon, mm-hmm. you may have heard whispers that they are going to raise the fee for the visa on arrival from 500,000 <laughs> That is hilarious. Well, wait, okay. hang on. From 500,000 rupiah, which is about 35 US dollars, to 1.5 million rupiah, which is about $105. But that ain't happening, according to officials in Bali, including its governor, EYN Custer. So all you have to do, Sam, uh, I believe all ASEAN nations basically can come into Indonesia now. And uh, holders of 43 passport nationalities can just uh, fly to Bali and obtain a visa on arrival for the stated price of 500,000 rupiah. And no more than that, um, because Bali officials have stressed that there will not be a raise because, you know, at this point, all they want is more tourists, right? It makes no sense to raise the VOA fee. Yeah, dude, like I thought that was real. And I was like, wow, they're really trying to milk the whole post-COVID situation. But I'm glad that that's the case. So would we know how this circulated in the first place and why it's that's, been so That's popular? a weird thing. When we first saw the announcement last week, it was made in an official circular. And ah. it was it was as official as it gets. Um, but... I think because of the backlash, they just backtracked. 
and and one official even went as far as calling it a hoax. <laughs> sure. It so was. yeah. So there we go, people. If you want, if you want to go to Bali, it's just thirty-five dollars on top of exactly. the flight tickets and and the hotel, which and the are hotel accommodation. Yeah, which are pretty relatively cheap at the moment still. Ah, oh, I love that you just went all Bali ambassador over there. Oh, take it from me, a guy <laughs> who was just in Bali last week. <laughs> Way to oh, flex your like, your holiday. For like three over weeks, there. man. It was beautiful. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Stop making me envious. <laughs> Moving on to Yangon, so Suki's lawyer dismisses talk of "quote unquote" dialogue with Junta. So, a lawyer for the former head of state of Myanmar said that comments that she made about a dialogue with the military did not signal a softening towards the Junta. So, speaking anonymously, uh, the lawyer told the publication Myanmar Now that Suki's recent reference to a dialogue during a recent court hearing. Referred to divisions within the public and not the military brass who overthrew her elected government last year. So she said there may be differences of opinion. Whatever we do, we must work together. If there is a difference of opinion, it must be discussed in a coordinated manner. That is what she meant. The lawyer said, referring to different elements of the opposition movement. So Suki's comments about dialogue made waves among those who interpreted them as a sign she was willing to negotiate with the junta. Uh, so she reportedly said, "Everyone needs to be united. Dialogue is a must. If you have not been able to hold talks yet, you will have to wait and discuss again." So, uh, yes, for those who aren't following uh, the the news in Yangon pretty closely, Suki has actually been held by the junta since before the February 2021 coup at a secret location in Naypyidaw. She's already been sentenced to a total of six years in jail in trials on various charges, trumped up charges that began last year. So the hearing on Monday was for corruption allegations that involves former Yangon Chief Minister Pyo Mintain, who has testified that he bribed her with 600,000 USD and gold bars. And a ruling is expected on April 26. Uh, Suki's lawyer said in final arguments that the lawsuit was illegal and that the prosecution had pressured Pyo Mintain by filing a lawsuit against him while he, well, while he was still in custody. So prosecution witnesses are still being questioned for the remaining four corruption cases against her. And at yesterday's hearing, Suki was seen wearing a traditional white Shan shirt and was said to be in good health by her lawyers. I mean, um, look, like... When you're, you've been dealing with all this, you know, deaths and all this sadness for years, a dialogue with your persecutors, I, I get how it can be, uh, you know, inviting. You just want, you just want to get it over with. But I, I get as well that it may not sit w- well with a lot of people, which is why Suji's lawyer probably dismissed all this talk of this so-called dialogue. No, exactly, and. I do feel like at this point, she is thinking and acting as a head of state still. But you would understand that the people who have you know, been wrongly persecuted, and a lot of them even as young as 16 and 17, being sentenced to death. Like, I mean, I, I understand why their stand would be like, we've, they've gone far beyond you know, any sort of civil recourse or any sort of, you know, Compromise, diplomacy. like any any oh, yeah, sort of diplomacy. compromise. Yeah, or diplomacy, exactly. Mm. So I know always hoping for the best out of the situation. You know, too many people have suffered. You know, it's really not good to see democracy being, you know, really undermined, ours included. So yeah, I really hope yeah. things get better. Okay, last but not least, we go on over to Jakarta where, you know, it's a pretty bizarre story. So... This a man who was driving a car, right? He okay. was driving over a railway crossing, and then the KRL commuter line—that's like the most popular commuter train in Indonesia, in Jakarta—crashed um, into his car. But the man mirac- miraculously survived. Oh my god! And you can see videos no, okay, so- of him yeah. just crawling out of his car and jumping over a fence and just walking away unscathed pretty much (laughs) 
what the fuck? Yeah, it's that so is, weird. Like, I mean, it's a miracle he didn't get squished to death. If you look I at the know. car, what happened to the car? But <laughs> funny enough is that now he may face criminal charges for trespassing and disrupting public services. Oh, man. Because it is, after all, illegal to uh, drive through a railway crossing when it's closed, right? Okay, absolutely. Okay, so for context, this driver has been identified as Ahmed Yassin. He is the leader of an Islamic boarding school in the city of Bogor, West Java. And he was on a way on his way to a high school in Jakarta to attend a Quran recitation, you know, with this being Ramadan and everything. And he claimed that his trusted map app directed him to the fastest route, which he said he wasn't too familiar with. But as his car was on the railway crossing on Rawagani Street, which is located between Chitayam and Depok stations, also in West Java, the car was squeezed between the train and the crossing gate and was heavily damaged as a result of the collision. I do implore you all to go over to Gokunachi Carter to see what actually happened to the car and you'd be scratching your head as to how this dude survived. But I mean, great, I guess. At least we're not looking at a freak accident. Yeah. Or like, yeah. A, yeah. I yeah. Mean, I mean, there's like, it's like, I don't think, there's, I don't think there's barely any blood on him even. Yeah, dude. And, but I, I hope he did have that checked for like, you know, internal bleeding or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I wanted to ask you, um, because we do have similar, you know, railway crossings in in Manila specifically, where you know you might be driving on a road where there would be, you know, where where a train could be passing anytime. Mm-hmm. But is like, wouldn't that normally like, wouldn't there be like the loudest beep thing or like kind of yes. like that, that the weird honking, you know, sound and yeah, or or at least like have that, you know, like the, like that bar that goes up and down just to the prevent, barrier you thing. know, yeah, yeah, the barrier thing exactly from um, prevent cars from crossing the road. Yeah, the thing in Indonesia is that um, you know they they go down a while before the trains come, right? The trains actually pass right. like a few minutes before. I'm not saying this is what happened in this case, but this is what happens often in Jakarta. Um, but especially motorcyclists, they just go over uh, when they're not supposed to, when mm. the sirens are on and and the bar has been lowered. They still sometimes sometimes they even lift the the, the barrier. Oh my god! Yeah, because, because <laughs> they don't want to they don't want to waste a minute of their life, you know. Mm. But we, we're so, not so, sure so, exactly what happened here. Mm-hmm. We we don't have the official findings yet. We're not sure if there was any mal, uh, malfunction malfunction to the uh, the warning systems that are right. in place. So, funny. What's funny is that this dude, right? So he he crawled out of his car, jumped over the fence, and apparently he walked away from the scene and met his brother who was around the area at the same time and asked him to take him back to his boarding school where he received a massage. Oh and, my god! And, <laughs> and soon after that, he was reported, he was actually interviewed by the media and like nothing happened. He just suffered like a number of bruises on his arms and his leg and his face, but nothing too serious it seems. But the Indonesia's uh, Jakarta's train operator, they're saying that they want to sue him and hold him accountable for his actions because he didn't prior- prioritize train travel, which resulted in damage to facilities and disruption to travel schedules. And, in, oh, and sure. there was a bit of a holdup uh, as um, a result of this. And this is like a very, very, very popular line, very crowded line. Um, and he said he has since said that um, he maintains that he didn't do anything wrong. So I guess we'll have to tune in to Coconuts Jakarta to see what comes out of this bizarre train yeah. situation. Yep. So while we're in Coconuts Jakarta, I think this is a nice segue to lead into our interview segment for this week. Um, I'm sure you've read last week we published a story about online predators targeting specifically Chinese Indonesian women for you know sexual abuse and uh, online. I have. And it's it's become one of our top stories this month because it is such an important issue that needs to be addressed. And we're pleased to have with us the author of that piece, Kevin Ung, all the way from Perth, Australia, to talk to us about that, about this whole writing process and all the impact that the story's had.
So joining us from Perth is Kevin Nung, who did a report on Coconuts Jakarta on online predators targeting Chinese Indonesian women and are doing some pretty vile stuff on the internet. So here to talk about um, his feature on Coconuts Jakarta. Thank you, Kevin, for making time with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Uh, yeah, so to get us started, um, yeah, why did you decide to research this topic? Well, uh, we hear about sexual violence. Uh, we know it happened. But uh, in this case, we see how it works in front of our eyes. And uh, it's, it's there, but many people are surprised because they do. They just know that it happened. So uh, I think the story uh, is that I need to tell and raise my responsibility as a journalist if I don't write this uh, story. And it is about a system. It is about how the law failed to protect the victims and survivors. It is about how the platforms failed to eradicate the predators online. And uh, the story on Chinese Indonesian women is uh, underreported. Uh, what we usually discuss is about the mass rape during the May riots in 1998. But uh, this story is new. So the fetishization and sexualization towards Chinese Indonesian women exists, but uh, not a lot of people talk about it. So this story will uh, expose that. Okay, when you say that, Kevin, you know, so you do acknowledge that there is pretty much like a fetish for, you know, any race or or any sexual, whatever it is, whatever angle you go into, there is a fetish for it, you know. So is there this this focus on Chinese Indonesian women, is that tied to, you know, your own identity as well? Um, yeah, pretty much because I'm a Chinese Indonesian uh, and I'm a journalist, so that's uh, what I need to tell. And the uh, fetishization toward Chinese Indonesian women is actually long back uh, since the colonialism, and also it happened again during the uh, mass rape in 1998. But uh, however, regardless of the race or the ethnicities, everyone can be the victim and also the predators. Uh, the predators hide their identities online and we don't know who they are and they could be anyone. So I think it's about uh, the system. So it's larger than a Chinese Indonesian uh, story actually. So it's about how the system fails to protect uh, women and also the victims of these uh, predators. So reading through um, the feature, it's very comprehensive. So could you talk us through your research process? Uh, when did you start the whole, you know, the whole thing? Yeah, so actually two years ago, uh, I attended my school, school reunion. Uh, then I met the boys uh, at a time. I don't know about cyber gender-based violence. Uh, then suddenly they talk about women and not just about women, but uh, their intimate image that were distributed without consent. And the most surprising thing is that one of the victims is my classmate, a uh, sister. And then at the time I was 18 and I was still a cop reporter. So I don't have many experience, but I already promised to myself that I will write this story. So three years later, I got a tip from one of the victims uh, and I noticed one predator account. And I began to tell that account started by the end of the last year. I think it was October. And I thought it's only several accounts. So it's a bad apple. But uh, in my mind, I feel like there must be a lot of uh, these uh, predators online. So I decided to learn their behavior, their network, and uh, collected over 3,000 predators account. And from these 3,000 accounts, I analyze one by one, and I see if they target Chinese Indonesian women specifically. Then I found around 50 accounts. I thought the number stopped there, but it keeps increasing as I research in depth. And the, the final number is 155 accounts that uh, target Chinese Indonesian women, and it keeps increasing. So this is not just one bad apple but it is about the failing system and why the number is high because it is easier to create new accounts rather than uh, reporting a violation. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Kevin, I had the absolute pleasure to work with you on this uh, story as well to edit. And um, you did share 
a lot of really disturbing evidence of all of this sexual abuse online. Um, could you maybe share a bit um, with the audience just the kind of stuff that you found during your your whole time research researching? But maybe maybe tone down a little bit on the specifics because they are really really disturbing. Yeah, so many horrifying things that we uh, didn't imagine before, and we we see that horrifying things in front of our eyes. So I think Andrea will understand what I mean. Yeah, oh. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, so uh, the one that we included in the article is uh, actually not all of it. So we actually toned down the evidence. But yeah, I see rape comments, uh, fetishization, sexualizations towards uh, any woman, actually. And uh, there are accounts who like to distribute intimate image without consent. And that's a pretty common one. And also there are accounts that uh, refer as a contributor. So I think I don't need to explain what uh, that is mm-hmm. because um, it's, yeah, it's really gross. And I see deep faith as well. And mm-hmm. I see many things that are inhuman and gross. And uh, they do these things with proud. You know, they, they do these things uh, without hesitations because they like to do this. Yeah. And one thing that really surprised me was like, there's like a whole really functioning community like there's camaraderie uh, among them isn't there like um excuse me but there was like this whole mass masturbation kind of kind of events right ah yeah yeah correct so it's a network network of predators who actually share the they say it's contents but i uh would not say that it's a intimate image that uh, were distributed without consent. So they share it among uh, themselves and then uh, do a jerking sessions on Twitter space. And they like to do this. Uh, and actually, they also sell these images. And some of them are pretty useful to do this kind of stuff. And they share it for free. So <laughs> it's a whole network of predators, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we know that, you know, like through your research, you've uncovered that, you know, this really like, I mean, it, it only looks like, like you mentioned, it lo- only looks like it's one bad apple or a handful, but it's actually like a really widespread network or even like a, I hate to use the word community, but that's pretty much what it is. Of yeah. Like all these predators that's pretty apt. coming together. Yeah. And fetish, I mean, yeah, fetishizing like these, uh, these Chinese Indonesian women. Uh, but could you talk to us about any major developments such as, you know, changes to laws and social media platform rules throughout the duration of your research? I mean, it's it's been a long time since that you've been tailing these accounts. Yeah, so when I first started to research this story, the anti-sexual violence bill has not been passed. And that is sad because there is no law that can protect the victims and survivors. Uh, There are laws that might criminalize the online predators, such as the electronic and information transaction law, but it doesn't have a gender perspective and it could actually criminalize the victims. Mm. But when I ended my research, uh, finally, we have the anti-sexual violence bill that uh, recently passed. And that was a relief. And honestly, I was shaking when I heard that news uh, because actually we have the law. But about the platform rules, uh, especially regarding non-nudity policy, the last update was 2019. So I think it needs some revisions and it's uh, quite outdated. Right. Um, uh, so on that sexual crimes law, do you think do you think it would suffice in, you know, stomping out all of this, this community of perverts, basically, um, or, you know, is you know, how it is in Indonesia, would that be not well enforced? Um, Well, we have the law, but uh, we shall see how it is implemented because we we still don't know how it is implemented. And I asked this for to the expert for for this article, and Mm. this might be pessimistic, but she said that it is not enough because the most important thing is how we implement the law and also how the law enforcement use this law instead of electronic and information transi- uh, transactions law or pornography law. Okay. 
all of these, um, all, all of the, all of the abuse that you found took place online and mostly on Twitter. But did you find any of these cases translating to real life abuse? Well, um, the abuse is online, but the effect of it is real life, especially towards the victims and uh, survivors. So they got traumatized. They changed uh, their behaviors and. They are afraid and hopeless because they don't know what to do. And they don't know why they become the victims because they just do normal things such as like posting selfies, um, doing regular stuff in social media. So, and they don't know who abused them. It could be anyone and there is no consequences for the predators. And the worst thing that they uh, that the predators could get is to be suspended. And that's all. So I think that's uh, enough uh, real, real life uh, abuse. I mean, like mentally abuse the victims and survivors in real life. Yeah, well said. I mean, I remember one of your uh, your source. She came off really angry at the end of it. Totally. Um, yeah, because like, she couldn't do uh, anything. And even I talked to one of the victims and she even don't know who can help her. So I, when I said that, I will write about this. And she's really relieved and say many thank you for me. I mean, like, I'm just writing this story. And I mean, it, it could not change the whole system. It's just a story. And I hope it, it could change the system. But it's just a story. But mm. she feels uh, that someone uh, care about her, you know, because she's uh, pretty lonely uh, yeah. through this experience. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and on that, then, um, we touched on this before, but I guess one party that has not, um, you know, taken much responsibility are the social media platforms themselves. But like, what more do you think they can do to completely eradicate these perverts? I mean, we couldn't completely eradicate these uh, predators because there are so many of them. They can create the accounts easily. Even they create uh, backup accounts. So that if their main accounts get suspended, they have another account. Mm. So I think I would suggest a permanent ban because it is the same predator again and again. Mm. And uh, I think the platforms also should revise the rules because it is outdated, including the policy regarding the new account creation. I see. Yeah, so something like the IP address, probably just to ensure that you know they don't come in and create you know, email addresses and, you know, keep creating new accounts. But yeah, so uh, talk to us about, you know, the article since it got published. Uh, what has been the reaction to the article? Was there any backlash? Um, what, was the, what, what was the feedback like? Well, the feedback is quite uh, positive, actually. And many people are surprised uh, by reading it because uh, it is something new that they know. And not only uh, for Chinese Indonesian women, but uh, a lot of women actually experience this kind of abuse as well because they have uh, fair skin and also light skin. Mm. And about the negative feedback, I, I received some of it yeah, from men. and they, they attack my identity as a Chinese Indonesian. They called me uh, communist and, <laughs> and other racist stuff so uh that's the negative feedback and also about the what aboutism so yeah. people are yeah so people say that it's not only happening to chinese indonesian women i know that but chinese indonesian story is underreported and that's why i write this story and they uh don't get it but most of the feedbacks are quite positive actually especially uh from women um, on that then, like uh, that backlash, do you, think, do you think one of those people that called you all those horrible things, do you think they're part of that community? One of them. One of them. <laughs> well, well, because of these stories, I couldn't trust anyone. Yeah. I couldn't believe anyone because it could be, the predators could be anyone. So I don't want to be prejudiced to mm. them, but maybe, I don't know. <laughs> 
Okay, then, um, you know, you, you, you do focus on a lot of um, Chinese-Indonesian issues, um, especially uh, uh, with all your previous articles for us. So what would you say are, like, the biggest challenges uh, the Chinese-Indonesian community who are, you know, of course, a racial minority in Indonesia? What do you think the, challenge, the biggest challenges they're facing now? Well, uh, racism and the stigma is uh, still there, as simple mm-hmm. as that. So we only read articles about Chinese Indonesian during the Chinese New Year and mostly about the culture. So I want to expand the horizon because Chinese Indonesians' issues are actually pretty sad and full of trauma. But we don't talk about it a lot. So many people uh, only talk about how rich the Chinese Indonesians are, although some part of it is true, but they are also poor Chinese Indonesians. And so writing about Chinese Indonesians is to give the truth. And for me personally, writing uh, uh, is about survival because I write to live. Uh, mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I guess to wrap it up, uh, what would you say are the biggest signs pointing towards hope of racial equality, especially in um, Indonesia? I would say respect. So when we are able to listen and support one another, regardless of what race they are. Mm-hmm. So it is simple yet hard to achieve. And simple act like listening might be a powerful tool to achieve uh, racial equality, as simple as that. Okay, we hope we achieve that one day in Indonesia and beyond. Thank you so much, Kevin, uh, for joining us uh, in the Coconuts yeah, podcast. Really and if you haven't already, do head on head on over to Coconuts Jakarta for Kevin's feature story. And Kevin, would you kindly tell the audience where they might be able to find you uh, online? Yes, yeah, so I'm on Twitter. the The Twitter name is Sanhatu. And I ha- also have Instagram. The, the name is kevng98. Yeah, so that's my social All right. media account. All right, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so I'm really glad that Kevin decided to, you know, shine a spotlight on this underreported issue. I mean, especially considering that, you know, like stories on Chinese Indonesians are underreported in yeah, in, in Indonesia. But, you know, it's really horrifying that, that that these women really have to undergo that kind of degradation and, you know, considering that they even didn't especially that they didn't even do anything wrong like you know they're just posting their stuff for content and here are other people you know just really bastardizing that and just really perverting that for their own sick and twisted means so Mm. you know i really and definitely you know internet like i mean the internet is a shared space but it really needs to continue being a safe space and i hope that you know the story and i'm glad that it's getting the the attention that it rightfully deserves but i really hope that it does shine the necessary spotlight like not just for everybody to kind of like have that awareness but also for you know for websites like and platforms to hopefully act more proactively on on this matter so yeah i'm really glad to have that you know that opportunity to talk to him about that yeah well said i mean i can't i don't think i can add any more to that i mean that there is a bit of me that's pessimistic that you know there will be any meaningful change but you know you got to start somewhere as as i always like to say and, absolutely um, and i'm glad to be part of the story to um to shine the light on this underreported issue as well absolutely absolutely and you know at the end of the day that's what that's what we're here for right we're here to write and shine the spotlight on things that need to be talked about and yeah you know every everything's got to start with a conversation yep so yep so with that, uh, we'll see you guys next week. Same time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support Coconuts and our weird and wondrous stories, you can become a Coco Plus member at coconuts.co slash membership, make a patron payment at coconuts.co slash patron, or buy your fresh merch at the Coconut Shop at shop.coconuts.co. Advertise with our in-house agency, Grove. Fast, funny, Digital, join forces with us to slay buzzwords, rise above the noise, and sow the seeds of something great. Get in touch via coconuts.co slash grove. Subscribe to the podcast and leave reviews. 
Tell us how you feel and what you like and don't like. We're excited to hear from you. The Coconuts Podcast delivers impactful, weird, and wondrous reporting by our journalists on the ground in eight cities. Singapore, Bangkok, Hong Kong, Manila, Jakarta, Kuala Lumpur, Yangon, and Bali. Listen to headline news and insightful interviews on matters large and small designed for people located in or curious about Southeast Asia and Hong Kong. The Coconuts Podcast is a Coconuts Media production. Our hosts are Sam Beltran and Andrew Nasri. Our executive producer is Byron Perry. Our production manager is Clarissa Cortez. And our editor is Paul Medina. Paul Medina.